0: Welcome to New Books in Italian Studies. I'm your host, Kate Driscoll, Assistant Professor of Italian and Romance Studies at Duke University. It's my joy and tremendous pleasure to be joined today by my dear colleague and friend, Jessica Gettles, recently minted Associate Professor of Italian at the University of Alabama, who is also currently a long-term research fellow at the Newberry Library in Chicago. Dr. Gettel's research centers on medieval and early modern literature and theater, focusing especially on gender and women's writing, the relationship between military historical events and their literary representations across genres, the intersections of print, manuscript and performative media, mysticism, prophecy, eschatology and rhetoric. Dr. Ghetto's first monograph and the conversation topic for this afternoon is titled Margarita Costa, Diva of the Baroque Court, published in 2023 with the University of Toronto Press. This authorial achievement ushers forth the first full-length study of Margarita Costa, the remarkable courtesan, professional singer, and prolific author. So, Jessica, welcome. I'm so glad we get to have this conversation today and toast to your new wonderful book.
1: Hello, Kate, and thank you so much for inviting me to come talk about this extraordinary figure of Margarita Costa with you and your listeners. I'm really grateful for the opportunity.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs>
1: she's, she's, uh, she's a delight and a fun time. She is. Um, she
0: is. A great conversation topic. Um, yes. so, so the first question just has to be right out the gate. Where did you meet Costa in your literary research trajectory? Um How did you know when you struck that amazing relationship with her um, that you wanted to write a book about her? Where Where did she meet you along your journey?
1: So I first discovered Costa while I was working on an altogether different century and a very different subject. I was uh, still a graduate student at NYU, um, where I had the the great fortune of having stupendous mentors and and a a set of colleagues who the kind of common line between us is that many of us were interested in or invested in studying and thinking about the place of early modern women and gender. and thinking about its ideals, its practices, and its faces. And so what I hope now is that with this book, Margarita Costa becomes recognizable as one of those important faces. But at the time, I was working on the, uh, a dissertation on the 1527 Sack of Rome, and was reading stacks of very brutal descriptions of torture. And so as you might imagine, I was in need of a little bit of levity. So at one of our big national conferences, and my memory is that it was the MLA, I was musing with one of my then NYU colleagues, Sarah Diaz, who's now at Fairfield University, about whether an Italian Renaissance woman had ever read a comedy, or written a comedy, pardon so we poked around and learned that the, the answer was yes, uh, a comedy called Le the buffoons, written by a 17th century professional singer who was also one of the uh, period's most prolific and visibly successful women, uh, but about whom relatively little attention had been dedicated. So we, uh, when we got back home, we kind of mused about this a, a bit further and realized that we would like to translate that work, both because it was unexpected, unknown to us, and really as it's, as a work in itself, a lot of fun. So we did that with the, the other voice series that um, furnishes a lot of translations of early modern women's work, uh, in our case, in a bilingual translation. And in that same period, I also happened while in Florence on the manuscript version of Costas. horse ballet libretto, a subject to which I imagine we'll want to circle back, and ended up writing a substantial article on that for Renaissance Quarterly. So I had in this moment, a fair amount of um, momentum and interest and knowledge built up about her. And I was, again, still for the sack of Rome work, happened to be a summer at the Folger Shakespeare Library, which despite its name, uh, has a a fair number of, uh, a good number of materials for Italianists as well. And while there, I realized that they had the, one of the biggest collections in the world, and certainly in North America, of Costa's works, texts that they didn't quite yet know that they had because they were still going through the process of cataloging the non-English material. So I told them that they had this wonderful collection, asked for a fellowship to come study it, um, and so then found myself with a full year fellowship and momentum and decided to table the Sac of Rome and dedicate myself to Costa. And if I had been spending all this time thinking about misery and torment and death with war in the um, 1500s, Costa couldn't have been more different. So she is, as I mentioned, a professional singer in chamber and opera um, contexts, active in cities like her native Rome, Florence, Turin. Venice, Paris, who was able to accumulate the best of the patrons, the uh, Medici family in Tuscany, the Barberini papal family in Rome, Cardinal Mazarin and Queen Anne in France. Queen Anne was at the time the regent for Louis XIV and addressing her writing across a multitude of genres and registers. And for especially her most important patrons, the the Medici, uh, her appeal for them was based on her ability to write in kind of burlesque, salty, and unexpected ways. And that's part and parcel, of course, of what the Baroque period was, but it was unusual for a woman writer who was expected to show decorum. Um, We can think about Costa's predecessors like um, Vittoria Colonna, who wrote about her dead husband and and glorifying his memory. But Costa, because I think she was a singer and and singers in this period were seen as marginally and um, and as sexually available, she was already somehow on the limits of decorum anyway, and so didn't have those same... Constraints on her writing and it can, could embrace the theatricality, the flair, and the playfulness of Baroque aesthetic.
0: That's great. I mean, if that doesn't sell enough of of not only the book, but the the desire to study Costa as a topic, um, choosing her over the sack of Rome, I don't don't really know what else would. Um, So the book is just, it's so spectacular. And as you say, I mean, one of the things that makes Costa such a fascinating figure is this dance that she choreographs um, with her authorial persona, always between the spectacular and the literary. Um, And this comes through so well in the cover image to the book. So we've, we have to start on the outside in order to work our way to the nitty gritty. I think we all just need to know more about this image. Where you found it? Um, how did how did how did this image speak to you as as the cover image into the world of Margarita Costa with this woman playing the Spanish guitar, whose gaze is is looking elsewhere, but whose mouth is open. She's she's on the precipice of doing something amazing, even in the act of of playing. And so, um, what's what's the story behind this image here?
1: Well, uh, Kate, I'm so delighted that you like it. I'm I'm rather fond of it too. And I'll tell you that it was the last piece of the puzzle to fall into place. And I actually had to rewrite the introduction in order to incorporate it. Um, because I had had in my mind to have as one of the cover, as the cover image, one of the two portraits that are done of Costa by her contemporaries, one anonymous, one by one of the famed draftsmen of, of Florence, Stefano della Bella. But as my, as the editor pointed out, there a in black and white and b have shown up on the covers of other um texts about costa not not excluding my own uh, translation of her buffoon comedy so um my my editor has suggested a number of really spectacular images of female performers what looked to be primarily actresses in a, an ensemble setting um and they would have been gorgeous but the only problem with that for me was that costa was never part of a troupe or a company she was something of a if not a lone wolf, at least a, a free agent. And so portraying uh, a a group, a company of some kind, in the cover seemed disingenuous to how I saw her operating in her own day. Um, so that was problem number two. One and then I guess my my next impulse was that I wanted to somehow be able to incorporate an idea of who she could have been, while also giving a nod is a performer, I mean, and then also giving a nod to her literary enterprise, which is really the the meat of what I'm looking at in this book. So uh, as you say, the 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 portrait that we have on the cover. Is of a, a singer playing the guitar. It's by Simon Vue and it now hangs at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. So she's strumming in the, uh, a guitar, and the image might best be described as sultry. And I'll add that my university has this really delightful tradition of taking faculty book covers and blowing them up, up poster size and hanging them, uh, framing them, and hanging them in the various uh, university departments. So I really love the idea. I'm tickled by the idea that this sultry portrait will be in my hallway one day so as you as you note, kate her uh the singer's um fingers on the guitar she's turned her head her lips are open as though she's either about to sing or lost in thought maybe both Mm -hmm. the light is is kara we can't help notice that her she has these green satin sleeves and one of them is slipped from her shoulder and so she's showing a little bit of flesh there and then the lighting frames her breasts right above the guitar so she is provocative uh in a way and simon vote was a french artist who's active in rome in the first decades of the 17th century a moment when there's uh, quite a bit of demand for images of female musicians it's not clear who this particular singer was uh, uh the one that we see portrayed here a hypothesis is that it might have been the artist's wife who was both a painter and a musician herself But for me, what matters most is that the portrait's executed in a moment and in a city where Cosa was also active. So even if it's not her per se, we can imagine that it could be her. And the image of this woman is not altogether dissimilar from the uh, portraits of Cosa that I mentioned. So it's emblematic of a figure like her. And um, what was especially appealing to me is that the Costas' first major publication uh, of her own was called La Guitarra, The Guitar. This is a massive collection of love poetry, about 600 quarto pages, so kind of full pages. Uh, a lot of it rather salty in nature, much like this, uh, this sitter. And in the dedication to that work to the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Fernando Secote de' Medici, Costo describes how she sees the position of the guitar at car- court, she says, you know, as many people in her own day would, would lament, it's too lowly, it's too pedestrian, it's not sufficiently elite. But nonetheless, everyone else liked it, desired it, and wanted to hear it play. And that's how she also presents herself. So for me, in this portrait, cost is akin both to the woman, the sitter herself, and the instrument that she's holding.
0: That's beautiful. And it, even just as you were ne- bringing us through your, your visual analysis of the image um it, it, for some reason just it, it, describing the light as as in the style of caravaggio really brings out just the 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 flush in her cheeks right she's so mm-hmm. alive in this moment and that's so different from the the very stage kind of beautiful authorial portraits which are included in the volume and so everyone can can still check those out but there's something so very like alive and conversation already in this image that I think does a beautiful job of, of bringing in the the figure of Costa as this figure that's in dialogue and a musical dialogue so I really love that
1: yeah certainly um, here she's not buttoned up She's
0: she not that. No, no, no. She wants you to know something, and she's inviting you on to to maybe like play play a role in in finding that out. Um, so lovely. So um, staying then on the on the cover, I think another one of these kind of great use the you use the word just now um, emblematic. Uh, so another one of these the, these great ways of thinking about Costa that that you argue in the book, and you really argue very beautifully and convincingly, uh, has to do with the term diva, and when. Maybe we think of that term. We might associate it right away with kind of the actress tradition. And I really liked your reading just now of kind of pushing against the, uh, the framing of Costa as, as as someone who's kind of made possible simply because of an ensemble of other people doing what she's doing. In many ways, she's very unique, even if she's recalling that her tradition. But but the word diva, um, that you bring out in the book has these different meanings that she's tapping into at different times, whether that's the diva in in the, this burlesque salty is one of my favorite Jessica words that, that you could use. Um, but then diva also, I mean, she, she's also the, the author who's writing about St. Cecilia and the kind of spiritual dimension of mm-hmm. the diva that has this supernatural connection. So can you spell out kind of the few different ways that diva uh, worked through the book while you were making it? Is that something that you decided on early or kind of like the cover sort of came through as an organizing principle later on? Mm.
1: I I did start off with this title and I was never sure right until the moment in which the book landed in my hands that it was going to stay the tar- title because I was maybe carrying a doubt that that wasn't a fair description of Costa because she didn't she had fame in her own day but she wasn't the most famous of the singers active in this moment um others like um Ellen Leonora Baroni Barbara Strozzi was active in music her own sister Anna Francesca Costa uh was arguably more famous than than she was but wh- why I stuck why I was drawn to and stuck with this idea of Costa as diva is that um she's a figure that I think employs, to great advantage, and practically so, displays of her own virtuosity, not only as a singer, not only within the chamber but and and on the stage, but also in her relationship to her patrons, her ability to mold her identity, literary and otherwise, to their expectations and appetites, and also to really demonstrate virtuosity in her publications. So as I mentioned before, she's really spanning... um, nearly all possible genres. So under her name, we have history writing, we have various forms of um, of lyric poetry, love poetry, funeral poetry, occasional poetry, a number of um, performative works. So of course, her burlesque comedy, The Buffoons, but also several different libretti, um, uh, sh- various short epics and the like. So she's really showing off her ability to do all things also through writing. As you say, the, the idea about what a diva was, was in transition from the late 16th and 17th centuries, um, marking a departure from the original meaning of the word, which was not kind of, as we associated today, this kind of capricious, um, uncontrollable, proud female performer. Um, at, at the time, originally, the word diva was more associated with the divine, so the sacred realm, a uh, kind of female deity. And that shifts as we have the arrival of kind of prominent celebrity female uh, performers, the celebrity actress and the singer, um, particularly visible initially with the phenomenon of the Commedia dell'arte tradition and actresses like Isabella Andrini. And I'd be remiss if I did not mention here two great books by colleagues Rosalind Kerr, The Rise of the Diva on the 16th Century Commedia dell'arte stage, and Pamela Allen Brown's The Diva's Gifts to the Shakespearean stage. So, people who scholars interested in uh, theater have already kind of pinpointed this trajectory towards diva hood, if we can coin that word. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about professional or prominent singers and actresses that were kind of drawing audiences that were reaching celebrity status, necessitated new ways of praising them and their skills. And so the one of the initial impulses is to liken them to the divine. So the diva kind of slides from being about, um kind of sacred qualities to an appellation of of celebrity so moving into the performing arts uh I think as you mentioned Kate one of the ways in which we see this really come forth in Costa's work is a um hagiographic opera that she writes about the figure of Saint Cecilia, who's a a virgin martyr in Rome. Uh, uh, Costa was, of course, also from Rome. The women also share an interest in music. Saint Cecilia is is the patron saint of music and often, uh, especially over time, increasingly depicted as either associated with music or eventually in the Baroque period playing music. And so Costa returns to Rome from her period in Florence, uh, needing to court new patrons, uh, specifically the Barberini. Um, the Barberini nephews uh, are her most close interlocutors, and their uncle, of course, is Urban VIII. Um, by happy coincidence, St. Uh, Cecilia's um, kind of religious intercessor and, and pope at her time is Urban I. So Costa kind of cleverly draws a nice parallel between these two figures and writes a 4 canto hagiographic opera about this singing saint and her relationship to the Pope, Urban. Um, And in one of these, uh, one of these cantos, uh, there's a kind of henchman who is sat, sent to do the second attempt to kill San So first they try to boil her alive, but she just sang the whole time in, in Costa's version and, and emerges unscathed. And the second time, he's there to um, behead her. And as he arrives in her house, he sees her, um, so hears some kind of celestial music around her, which is how we would in, in the kind of long iconographic tradition associate Cecilia with sacred music. But then this Cecilia is sitting in an organ, and she becomes be begins to play. And essentially she's bringing down the house, right? Her music is so amazing that the henchman is momentarily tempted to to not um go forward with with his kind of bloody, brutal task. And then he calls into question, well, what is the nature of music? Maybe she's seducing me rather than than anything else. Um, but we see this moment in which Costa is playing with the idea of the diva as it's transitioning. So diva as the sacred is this martyr saint, but diva as the tremendously capable, skilled, and virtuosic uh, musician is also Cecilia in that, in that moment. And so Of course, throughout this poem, in order to appeal to her Barberini patrons, Costa is kind of um, sprinkling in associations of herself with the saint. She, She notes from the beginning that that's a somewhat problematic association because she is a kind of, as you say, salty singer with a certain reputation and began her career as a courtesan, but she professes to be newly penitent. And so she wants to have a relationship to her urban like Cecilia had to the original urban, the first. And so she implicitly in this is also pointing to herself as a diva figure.
0: That's lovely. Thank you. And I I, I couldn't help, but also kind of hear the, some trace of a potential uh, parallel with your own experience in in giving up the sack of Rome and t- in converting to Costa and the idea of you know abandoning the the language of the, the tragic and the assassination and the murderous attempt and then you yourself found found Costa in this kind of Saint Cecilia parallel like way, um, I mean it, it, it's, it's what you're describing. But she just had so many fascinating interests that that she advanced from she 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 was able to find things that she was interested in that also interested her and interested her relationship mm-hmm. then with the patrons. And the book starts this story of her um, constant dialogue with different patrons from her role as uh, as an editor of the Grand Duke, as a teenager of the Grand Duke, Ferdinando II de' Medici's uh, trip up to a different court across the Alps. And so the, the story of Margarita Costa, this incredibly prolific writer, starts then uh, as Costa, the incredibly, Careful editor. And um, I really enjoyed that chapter a lot because I really I find women's um, early modern women's history with historiographical writing really underdeveloped. And I think that this will just blow open lots of exciting doors for for new kinds of research. Um, and because then the later chapters turn more and more to this, her navigating different relationships with either other, other Medici patrons or even the Barberini, as you're explaining, or even figures up in France. Um, what 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 do you think then the impact like what's your sense of that impact in narrating the Grand Duke's ventures and the amount of um, space that that text leaves open for the Grand Duke's own interest in spectacle and so here she is she's editing this text she's she's reading about what the lives of patrons are lives and she herself is is about to embark on her own life of writing of writing all sorts of different kinds of texts of spectacle. Um, materials and so is there a kind of relationship that you think she starts to be fairly aware of um, in, th- in that sort of kindred spirit like uh, framing between her own interest in spectacle and clearly what her patrons were were interested in?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating question, especially because this is her her first work, and you know we're kind of I think um, calling it in 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 our conversation uh, an edited. Text that she brings forth. But, but my calling of that, I think within within the kind of historiography of a figure like Costa will itself be somewhat audacious, I think because it's usually treated as... Um, or at least in contemporary scholarship, treated as one of her authorial productions. Um, her own contemporaries highlight the fact that she acknowledges in her dedication materials or paratextual materials, that she actually relied on the papers given to her by the Grand Duke's secretary. But there's, I think, because women's writing has so long been dismissed or that there's been a temptation to strip away women's authorial um achievements, that there's been a temptation to call this her work when, um, I think increasingly as I worked on it, became convinced that we can't see her as anything other than the editor rather than the author of this work. Um, and the text itself, I should take, take a step back and say this, it's a meticulous history of Fernando II's 1628 journey up to the court of the Holy Roman Emperor in Prague. The Holy Roman Emperor happens to be his uncle. And he, um, He is already the Grand Duke of Tuscany, but he's still in his minority. So his father had died in 1621, and uh, his kingdom or his his principality has been ruled by his mother and his grandmother for the last seven years. So this is kind of his coming-of-age trip. He'll go down to Rome and then circle all the way up the Italian Peninsula, all the way to Prague, and then come back. And the text itself is a day-to-day account of his movements, the various diplomatic niceties and protocols who got out of the carriage first, who stepped forward last, et cetera, et cetera. And and mentions, most importantly for us, of the many entertainments that were staged for him um, along the way. And his trip is kind of neatly tied to um, uh, his birthday. So he returns to Florence on the day of his 18th birthday and assumes power and now is, in all senses, the Grand Duke of Florence. Um, The the materials... Uh, that Costa draws on are uh, relazioni, these reports that were sent back from people in uh, the Grand Duke's entourage back to the two regions. and so I, in the Archivio di Stato di Firenze, I found all of the original materials, and so she's made some light adjustments, but what she's really done is brought them together into a whole and kind of given them a framing. Um, And I think that's an important distinction to make because this history kind of sits apart from the rest of Costa's corpus, not only because it's the first publication, but her other writings, even though, as I mentioned, they span genre and registers. Some are quite serious and dynastic in nature. Some are kind of um, off color, more than sexually suggestive um, and, and, and tend towards the poetic. This is a very, very dry diplomatic history. And so even on first read, it seems at odds with Costa's productions. And when, so we, when we recognize that Costa did not author this, but edited it, brought it into being, it does raise the important question of why um, such an important work for the identity of the Grand Duke of Tuscany, um, why such a work was given to an at then point unpublished Roman female singer who until recently had been a courtesan. So why, why is this being published on her name, under her name? And I think that's not that, that, question is not yet answerable, but it's very clear that she got institutional help, if not uh, an outright commission to do it. So it's her kind of entree into um, the publishing world and clearly helps her bridge a relationship with the Medici that will last throughout her career, throughout her life. It has its ups and downs, but it's not something, it's not some pirated work she's done. It's something that's really bridging her relationship to this patron. And I think w- Again, it is a dry diplomatic history, and I think Costa, in putting it together and stitching together, recognized that, and then reading through these um, official documents that are being sent to grandma and mom about his experience, uh, what you likely realize is that the then 17-year-old Grand Duke, because of course he's turning 18 on the day he arrives, while he's taking this journey over the course of six months to Rome and all the way up to Prague, when he's going to processions, orations, religious plays, he's very often bored. And that's something that we, you know, those of us who teach freshmen, it's not an unfamiliar um, phenomenon, right? And try as they might, you know, the, the poor folks of Venice sometimes just can't capture his attention. Um, and even things like bank banquets and masquerades for him often grow dull and he expresses a desire to skip them even if kind of diplomacy does not permit him to do so. Uh, and the moments of levity, levity in that text are moments in which Fernando Secondo is either himself organizing or being exposed to other kinds of less stuffy, less official uh, entertainment. So for example, while traversing the mountains after it had snowed, he himself organizes a race of mountain villagers who are wearing these kind of big, clunky snowshoes. So he likes, I I think she's identifying that he likes to be entertained in these kind of um more more carefree more satirical more playful ways and she brings those some of those lessons into her own writing so for example in her comedy the buffoons one of her favorite scenes is a, a moment in which she has a court buffoon who's performing for the princess on a um a um a riding stick a kind of broom instead of uh, pretending it's a horse and then falls off of it to dramatic effect right or to humorous effect so what she sees in this is that the the Grand Duke and his brothers enjoy uh, revelries, entertainments that are often off color. And so I don't know that we can necessarily say that she sees him and him, the Grand Duke, a kindred spirit, or that her outpouring tends to respond to his interests and are designed to capture his attention. But the other lesson besides the kind of goal of entertaining such entertainable patrons is that she understands, I think, that the importance of incorporating uh, kind of dynastic messaging or political messaging desired by a patron into her writings, and so it's it's not just that she has these fourteen publications that she kind of dashes off to various patrons, and that's and that's it, and thanks them for their help and their and their um, graciousness and dedicatory letters. Her patrons are insistently, repeatedly woven into her text as a primary focus of what she's doing, and I think that I can't help but think that. The act of editing a diplomatic history at this very initial stage of her career helps drive home that message. But at the end of the day, I think that what she what she really takes away is that what is permissible to her as a female writer is going to be much more vast. And that's especially in the case of a place like Florence, where the Medici are at the helm um, so that she can do things like write a comedy that is a parody of their court um, and where the, where the um, various characters are what she calls freaks of nature that are based on historical figures in the Medici employ and who kind of fall over themselves and have a right as a, up uh, uh a, a riotous time and are are drunk and um carnal and and having fun um, she can insert dwarves and hunchbacks into her poetry she can describe her own writing as monstrous in a way that will be appealing and so i think her relationship what she sees in Ferdinand, is letting her push the boundaries of what she imagines a woman writer could do now when she moves to other courts that's not the same phenomena a woman in rome cannot push the boundaries in that same way. And so then she we're gonna see her pivot to writing a hagiographic app uh, uh epic about a martyr saint, for example.
0: Yeah. That's that's so instructive too, because I mean then it, it just it reveals then how much the Medici modeled for her that the political is by no means divorced from the playful. I mean, I've no I don't think I've ever heard a case of snowshoe wars being so inspirational <laughs> to, to any figure in our in our time period. So um that that's just really 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 fabulous um and else elsewhere throughout the book as as you're already hinting at in these answers that are that are reminding me that I'll, how much I want to go back and reread things um you you underscore throughout the this language that she was an astute monitor of taste and and that those are your beautiful words and 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 you've already described that she's monitoring taste from the burlesques to the sacred, um, from the salty to the less sultry, um, and so in this sense I, I think reading your book of course with these musicians ears of mine I couldn't help but then also think about Costa as this wonderful producer this incredibly prolific author, but as this just very careful listener. And she's sort of this Mm -hmm. ideal musician to play music with because she listens as much as she gives, you know, as as much as she's putting uh, putting out there. And she has her ears to the ground in in contemporary history in different ways. And I know that um, the the, one of the chapters that I really, really loved um, because it's opening up new ways to think about epic and women's epic, especially, has precisely to do with, as you're saying, this relationship between Costa and the Medici. Um, Mm -hmm. So so for for those who are who are who are about to go dive into your book, if you can give us a little preview of of her um dynastic epic for the Medici family. And in if you if you can answer this, I know that it might be a little bit of hypothesizing, but what your senses of Costa's um sensitivity to these different historical moments and her own kind of planning of of her work she wrote so much so is you have a sense that she sort of knows in advance a little bit of what she wants to write or are things kind of occasioned because of historical circumstance or do you do you have a sense of that after after writing the book
1: that's a fabulous question and I really wish that I had a more definitive answer I have some hypotheses I'm going to share with you but I I would love to have a more definitive answer and what I think is um one of the challenges still for those i hope that are going to take up the baton and work additionally on costa is that for a woman who wrote so prolifically and published so prolifically she left so limited numbers of items traces in terms of her auto uh, autograph material or that material hasn't survived or hasn't been located and so it'd be delightful if we had and certainly helpful if we had more of her letters for example that explains her thought process so mostly what we have to go on are the um aside from some some select letters what we have to go on are her texts herself their selves and i think um you know we can see her i think i I, because she is a performer who traveled i think in very practical terms she is likely carrying her materials from one court to another, trying to see what might fit, you know, how can she put a certain peg in a certain hole where she's traveling? And she gives us a glimpse of this in a wonderful autobiographical poem that is actually a poem of complaint about how she's been treated. Um, And this is, I should say, one of her favorite themes is that she is oft mistreated, oft misunderstood, um, not by her current patron, of course, but her former patrons or the residents, writers, other women at whatever city she's just left. So in this autobiographical poem, she is um, in in Florence. Been started. She describes starting to write there to some acclaim, but then some some various voices start to disparage her, and so she storms off. She says, um, with all her writings from her time in Florence, but also previously in Rome, under her arm, and going to. She's heading off to go complain to Apollo himself, and. Apollo, when she gets to him, um, is essentially going to, A, reassure her that she is indeed a good writer. But two, she's going. To, he's going to tell her that she needs to begin to vary her writing style, not just the saucy poems and letters that she'd been working on there but to really open up her, her kind of genre capacity. Um, I think we see this in... Um, this carrying around of her works in very practical terms in the case of her equestrian ballet libretto um, which she writes as part of her of the dynastic work she intends for fernando II in florence um, i think my guess is in celebration for a child that um that quickly died uh and so she can't get to stage in florence and but you know ten later that's that the next uh, decade she's in Paris and she reproposes it for the Parisian court recrafts it and she that and because the overlaps of the texts are so close it means that she must have been carrying this work around with her so I love the idea of a call star who is moving from city to city singing performing writing and also has a portfolio of sorts in her in her bag Uh, There is another uh, great example in an unfinished manuscript. There's a couple of uh, texts that she has that are um, in manuscript version. One of those is that equestrian ballet libretto. But another one is a manuscript poem that begins with a burlesque text about the various entertainments at court. So she's got a canto on banquets, comedies, games, hunts, and it's really quite daring. The, The first canto has the main character, who's named after herself, of course, Margarita, who is trying to fight off a kind of grabby, handsy cardinal with a bedpan. But then the circumstances change. She either mo- it's it's either that she's moved from Florence to Rome or. Um, her patron, uh, Camilo Pamphili um, has just risen in stature because his uncle has just become pope and he's about to become cardinal. So all of a sudden, it looks like she's lobbed on two additional cantos that are about her conversion um, and that she is now going to be the kind of repentant figure. And she titles the whole project, The Journey to uh, Loreto. Loreto is, of course, the, the city where famously the the home of the Virgin Mary is transported. So she gives a sacred veneer, but doesn't go back and revise that first canto where she's, you know, having to push away the hands of this, uh, this libidinous cardinal. Um, And you, you know, you asked us specifically about her dynastic work connected to the Medici. And I think really indicative of this is a short epic that she writes during the pre- or during and for the pregnancy of the Grand Duchess, Vittoria della Rovere. So she structures it that there are going to be nine cantos for each nine of the nine months of the Grand Duchess's pregnancy. As I mentioned a moment ago, the, the child. Mm-hmm dies within just a couple of days. And so Costa, kind of faced with what to do, uh, doesn't table the text, but asks permission to still publish it if she can adapt it. And so she adapts it by adding a 10th canto uh, in which Jove decides that the child is just too good for this earth. And it's a kind of apotheosis scene where he's carried up into the heavens. But really in a way that I find flabbergasting later that year, she decides to rewrite the work in its entirety. Now as a drama into my eyes, uh, an opera libretto. And that's a great case in which I would really love to see a letter um, explaining why she decided that a text that she had to kind of bandage up to in order to get published, because it's, topic was so delicate after the death of the child why she recrafted it as an opera libretto and not only but dedicates it if the if the um if the original um epic was dedicated to the grand duke she now dedicates it to the grand duchess this opera libretto so why she does that i do not know but it shows the the degree to which she is kind of constantly kind of tinkering with rewriting
0: recrafting her works it's got to exist there's got to be a secret letter in some archive if only <laughs> only. that's a, that's a, what we all what we all actually just fantasize about is right I'm, mm. I'm still waiting to to find to find things by 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 tasso that explain these these similar little mysteries um they so, could have done us a
1: kindness by leaving us some extra clues exactly you know?
0: right no they they didn't write enough <laughs> these, these two authors um <laughs> Ah, oh, so so now is the the grand the grand uh, exposé into into one of these genres that has never been mentioned a few times but I imagine mm-hmm. that for um many many listeners and for many even experts of early modern Italy um the the equestrian ballet is going to sound new um and, and in ways that I hope that soon it will not sound so new <laughs> um but yeah that that will know more about this uh really really spectacular form of performance um on which your your early scholarship um, was award winning, so we have to always congratulate that. Um, oh, um, yeah, so it, it, I guess just just if you could provide context into when we say equestrian ballet, you know what 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 comes to mind, um, and if we could also tie this uh, to the kind of question of the reception of the Baroque, like is the is the equestrian ballet. This genre that has been unfortunately sacrificed in the history of, of of knowing things about 17th century Europe, in part because of the Baroque sort of shady association by certain critics, especially from the art historical trends who made like early early versions, right? Who 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 saw the Baroque as being overly excessive and lacking severity, lacking gravitas. Um, in in the process of that historiographical um language did we lose the equestrian ballet and um how 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 does Costa kind of excitingly bringing us bringing this back bring it back to us and bringing us back Mm.
1: yeah I think it's it's such a great point because the Baroque has suffered from various uh lines of attack and I think that it is still encumbered particularly as regards Italian literature baroque is still something of a four letter word in Italian literature in a way that it's it's no longer not always in art for example if we think about bernini's statues no one's arguing for their lack of um, uh, of validity or importance right. or music. If we think about the uh, outgrowth of, of opera uh, is more the case. I think in Italy as compared to um, places like Spain and Kate, as you yourself know all too well, it's it's really the Italian intellectuals and writers of the late 17th century themselves who really put the kibosh on Baroque aesthetics and dismissed the first half of the century as this era of bad taste. And so for so long, how could you possibly dedicate your time and energy to studying the era of bad taste with maybe some l- small exceptions carved out for figures like Giambattista Marino, and then still with some caveats, no? And so if we think about kind of the grand scholars of Italian um, early modern literature, like Benedetto Croce, he had a really low opinion about the Baroque. He had a really low f- opinion about women's writing. And for him, the two meet in Costa, and he just absolutely disparages her as kind of a scribbler of no no value and i think it's only now that we're climbing out from under that blanket of condemnation of the baroque and so certainly um equestrian ballet has been a a a victim likely of of that Pushing away of an entire century worth of um, activity as inappropriate, unworthy of of scholarship, I have a, a suspicion too that part of the lack of familiarity with something like equestrian ballet that was so delightful and just absolutely a uh, wow audiences of the day is that we associate it with Vienna and, and um for those who are interested in horsemanship and dressage, pardon me if I say that um, maybe in contemporary vision dressage is seen as something that is kind of um, a silly activity of the elite. And I, I've been I've been convinced and won over to the idea of, of dressage as an art form. Um, but I think that there's a lack of recognition that the equestrian ballet was this kind of um, almost Broadway of the 17th century, right, that is bridging medieval uh practices and emerging performance forms. So on the one hand, we have jousts and tournaments. On the other, we have the new emerging um, forms of opera and court ballet, ballet de cour. And um, what's fascinating to me about equestrian ballet is that while musicians and singers would provide the acoustic backdrop, the participants in the ballets were themselves the prominent men of the city or of the court. Um, Moreover, these these ballets, have, of course, they, they have poetry, they have choreography, they have um, brilliant colors, great music, stage entertaining, engineering with machines. So we might have a giant figure of Atlas walking across um, the outdoor arena for a Medici performance. They're really a multimedia phenomenon um, that truly, as I mo- as mentioned a moment ago, just absolutely dazzled audiences. But their function, their purpose was not just for the kind of pleasure and entertainment of a court. Often these were put on for really important um, what we might call state events. So in the event of a a, a marriage of the the son or daughter of the grand duchess or um, uh, some other kind of diplomatic encounter of the kind, these were shown as seen primarily as a military art so that in moments of peace, you could show off your ability to excel in things like war. So not only are um, equestrian ballets demonstrating the good horsemanship of the individual, so um, the future grand duke who's able to maneuver his horse well in the arena, but the ability of riders to move their steeds with rhythm and in sync with each other so they're mimicking battle um in what costa calls in her libretto sweet war um, in order to show military readiness uh so they are they are really um a kind of total theater experience. And there's these marvelous festival books that are circulated to, to demonstrate to viewers, even from afar, what these might've looked like with kind of giant fold-out legends that show what the various horsemen are doing, showing various ki- chore- choreographic schema. Um, they are, intended to dazzle audiences, both in terms of the aesthetic, but also the military performance, um, but had gotten fo- somewhat forgotten, much like Costa her- herself. So I do share your hope that these kinds of performances will um, gain traction. Uh, there's a wonderful colleague uh, in French, uh, French musicology, uh, Kate Van Orden at Harvard, who had also studied these. But the we associate the, the horsemanship with the Vienna School. But in reality, Equestrian Ballet was um, a phenomenon that Seems to have started in France, but is really the purview of 17th century Italy. And among those courts, especially Florence, which has
0: had an absolute love for this as a, a, a performative form. So lovely! And I, I, I love uh, it, calling it the the Broadway of the 17th century. Um, <laughs> that, that 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 in and of itself should just kind of be a new a new graduate seminar required of students, <laughs> so we can we can learn more about this. And I'm just thinking about how you know, the colors and the sounds of what it would be like to actually have experienced one of those. Um, mm. I'm turning now to a question that is is probably now uh, unfair as as i it's not meant to be. Um, it's meant to to learn more about which side of Costa is maybe your favorite if you could if you could identify one. Um, but I also know that Costa in her own, the way that she is an emblem of versatility, um, all Costa's like the prism of Costa is the thing that that is also just so fascinating. But is there was there a sign in, of Costa's writing that that you were surprised by, especially when you were either during the process of writing the book or by the time you got to the end of it um, and after revisions and and having her hard copy on your desk? Did it, was it was there a way that you said oh, either that was my favorite Costa or that was the Costa that I wasn't expecting to find?
1: That's, that's a, uh, I don't think it's an unfair question. I think it is an absolutely fair question. And I would say the same thing that I say when people ask me, which is my favorite Italian city, and it's whichever city I am in at the moment, right? I think that each one of her works is so, there are overlaps between them, but each one of them is so different and presents so many Varying examples of her trying to experiment with literary tradition, or experiment with the, interla- uh, the uh, intersections between performance, music, and literature. That they they are all delight. I will. That's that sounds like a cop out. I'm not. I'm, I will give you some actual answers. Um, I think her the text that I uh, indicated was helping for my choice of the cover portrait, uh, her guitar, la guitarra, I think the lure and surprise of having a text, uh, it's almost 600 pages long, um, hundreds of examples of poems written by the voice of uh, a bella donna, a beautiful woman, who in male author poems is usually she uh the the kind of object of male desire and she might be uh attract attractive ugly alluring in some way but she's always voiced by some kind of male um uh authorial presence and uh Cosa takes that that um, Belladonna and makes her her own, so that she is her authorial persona. At the same time, in that in that um, collection, she opens up her first poem with a, a description, a lengthy uh, description in in verse of her muse, and she says her muse is not going to be the beautiful, fine uh, muses of of. Um, Classical tradition, her muse is a wild, ugly, screeching banshee named uh, Simona of Heliconas, so Simona of Helicon, who is going to do what she wants and cannot be controlled. And so that, that pushing away of boundaries, I think for, for me, was one of the first early surprising and delightful things about Corsa. And in that poem, she says, uh, or sorry, in the final poem of that collection, she says in another verse, don't raise your eyebrows at me, that women are not meant to write about serious things, that actually jocular, fun, satirical poetry is the purview of women uh, above all else. But of course, Costa varies, and Costa is going to show off her virtuosity and change. And so um, I think that her Cecilia Marta, the poem about Saint Cecilia, is one of her best written works in terms of the actual mechanics and the literary quality of the, of the text. If I was ever to undertake another one of her translations, though the buffoons, I think, is certainly the most historically successful of her works and is fun to work with, and I think fun um, to have students read and engage with. If I were to undertake another translation, it would be her um, epic about the grand duchess's pregnancy, uh, we're called Flora Feconda, because I really think it's the work perhaps in which I see Costa most playing and transforming literary tradition, um, especially Ovid, but also figures like Virgil and seeing how she can rewrite expectations in terms of voyage myth mm. um womanhood gender and performance right so i think that it's 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 a traditional box right it, it's it, it's a mediterranean epic in which she's being as most experimental as she can i will say that Costa's versatility and her way in which she's writing in so many different genres was part of the fun um, of doing this project, but it was also part of the challenge. So she's active in all these different courts, with all these different patrons, with all these different genres. And so she's literally all over the map, literally in sense of the geography, but also in terms of her genre and register relationships, etc. And so each one of the chapters, for me, felt like a full plunge journey into, for example, uh, a, t- a text I write, uh, a chapter I write on her relationship to female regents. And usually, Coulter without her uh, without her earth is mostly interested in cultivating men, but she finds herself with some female regent patrons, and so is having to explore uh, emblems of female power, and so having to go to Turin and learn for myself all the dynamics of um, Turini's political messaging, performance types, all those kinds of things, um, and bringing it together in a way that was informative for how I see Costa interacting in her period there and writing about Add to the Fact, Um, it was delightful, but it was quite a challenge, right? So she's um, her virtuosity is what makes her interesting and makes her fun. The difficulty of putting her in a box or the challenges um, presented by unweaving all of these various threads For a figure that like many other figures like her a woman who is not elite who is a um a professional performer the the archives are often silent about figures like her Mm -hmm. and so the difficulty of doing all that work while trying to find the needle in the haystack of what exactly she's doing and what can be documented and what has to be hypothesized um again a challenge though delight
0: and you overcame the challenge I mean it's we're all so grateful for the amount of I mean tracing that you've done in the the archival deep dives and, and trekking throughout all the cities I mean um if you've shown her you know you, you've you've really put the um kind of the the, the stopper in the mouth of, of critics like like Croce saying that she's just scribbling no she's incredibly incredibly versatile um and 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 can truly like evade all all boxes because she's checked so many um but the 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 tantalizing um hint that that you might be interested in translating the flora is really exciting too. Cause as you say, I mean, how do you make a genre that is so classic seem so modern and new? Um, and mm-hmm. and doing it in the style of, of Virgil no less. So that's that's exciting. Um what's also exciting is thinking about the new generation of new books readers who might eventually become new books writers Um, and thinking about Costa and our students. So you, you've mentioned, but I also want to make sure that that you just you deserve your own praise, that um, your translation, you and Sarah Diaz's translation of the Bifani, uh, is a wonderful hit with students. This I can I can guarantee I've taught classes on on gendering the Renaissance and students just, just think it's a hoot. Um, and so I'm wondering, in your own experience in bringing Costa and students together, what settings have you done that in and, and what kind of are students' reactions? If if it's in, you know, maybe a women's history class or a or even a class on satire, I could see her her working really, really well in. Um just so yeah, if you have any anecdotes to share.
1: Yes, uh students I think like I would hope faculty members find in Costa a lot of surprises. Mm-hmm. Um and one of our uh, colleagues um Sarah Ross in Boston has uh, coined the term weird humanism in part looking at a figure like Margarita Costa because she's uh, I think if I'm going to if I can paraphrase um Sarah she says hu- weird humanism is this kind of wanton wanton experimentation and I think students find that kind of unexpected playfulness in Costa, um, delightful, and of course, surprises is one of the best ways to hook and capture students' imagination. So I taught uh, Costa in two contexts. One was a uh, course on Italian comedy that I did for our upper division Italian language students. Um, And of course, reading something comedic in the original language not as a native speaker presents certain challenges so we performed it out loud they you know conveniently could go find our translation if they so desired um we performed it out loud i i will say that it was it was Um, Slightly humorous because we were performing it in part on a beautiful uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama springtime day, and I realized my students were discussing um, prostitutes and uh, hunchbacks right in front of the dean's office, (laughs) Um, but hopefully I saw that as a good pedagogical method. Costa would have and been then, proud. <laughs> she would have been absolutely proud. And the other place that I have um, taught uh, Costa was twice. I've been a visiting professor at the University of Padua, the in, in Padua, Italy, where I taught um, a kind of MA level course on Renaissance women writers. And I will say that sometimes when we're working on these figures within the U.S., it becomes... Uh, challenging because of the lack of translations, right? So that if we're teaching a class that's taught, taught in English, we're kind of limited in scope by what is available to us. And I hadn't really appreciated that the same degree is true when you're teaching in Italy because of the lack of modern editions. So I was teaching a graduate class on women writers in Italy, but the texts, the primary texts we wanted to work on from the 15th century to Costa day, were more available outside of Italy than inside of Italy. Um, And so I think the students in that class, not only did they find Costa um, a kind of fun and delightful surprise because they are so accustomed in their education to what um, the kind of satirical writer uh, Anton Francesco Grazzini, who's known as Alaska, described as petrarchisms and Bembisms, it's Mm -hmm. kind of traditional literary language of lyric poetry that they're used to, Um, they really found it surprising that there are so many women writers, especially in 16th century Italy, of which they simply were not aware. Mm-hmm. And I think I think thinking forward to the challenges of teaching figures like this, both in Italy and in the U.S. in the Italian context, it has to be one of um, access. And if I was going to put out a call for, you know, how to help solve these problems—the lack of modern editions in Italy and, the, you know, the need for greater numbers of translations um, in in the U.S. And of course, there are increase. There are more and more translations of of And uh, Indeed, my colleague Sarah Diaz is working on one on her um, amorous letters that will be coming out soon. I, I would really hope that there will be in the future more anthologies and readers, uh, readers in the sense of collected works um, uh, for the study of, of either theater or women writers or performance or all of these things put together or versions thereof. Um, We have currently Virginia Cox's Lyric Poetry by Women in the Italian Renaissance, Um, but that's very focused on, of course, by its title, you would guess, Lyric Poetry, and it doesn't expand to include figures like Costa for purely chronological reasons. And so I think for all of us, our ability to teach these figures will be aided by our ability to kind of um, place them together in a way that is accessible or um,
0: downloadable, as the case might be. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a wonderful call. I mean, I think I think so much um, could come out of that collaboratively too. I mean, really Mm -hmm. taking the best advantage of these different um, all of our different colleagues working across different um, areas of specialization, and then using those forces and doing things online and making that so it it, an addition would be available, you know, between between the states and um, in Italy and elsewhere. So. So much good. Things to look forward to. Um, so the last question, just as we're wrapping things up, um, you this is just such an amazing accomplishment. Again, congratulations. This is uh, you know just, just a fabulous, fabulous um, a, a accomplishment, really. And so I'm wondering, um, what's next? I know that you're at the Newberry now. And so you're wrapping up this fellowship. Are we going back to the sack of Rome of those stories of torture? Found you again? Um, Are you finding other ways to evade them or or where, where's, where's the research boat going now?
1: I am, as you say, back in Chicago, working on back in the sack of Rome, um, uh, trying to write uh, my study of the literary repercussions of the sack in time for the 500 year anniversary that's coming up in 2027. So the sack is, it is a fair amount of discussion of, of, Uh, the brutality that befalls bodies. But the way I'm reading it is also the ways in which... Italian literary culture opens up after the sack in part of necessity to find new voices. And so those voices will include uh, women writers. And so the the distance between the two projects is not maybe as net as it might seem. But after that, after after I'm uh, past uh past the sack, um, one thing that Culso has given me is I think an appreciation for um festival, spectacle, and performance as these kind of um moments of experimentation. And so I think that down the road, my my path will be looking towards um, uh, Renaissance and Baroque materials um, that I've been collecting as I've been working on these various things to think about gender, the body, travel, discovery, imagination, as presented not only by the spectacle, but the festival books that, that come after that. So to be determined on on what exact shape that will 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 take, but it will certainly be putting a lot of these same questions about how do we relate to patrons, how do we present, um, how do we present uh, fresh and innovative ideas within familiar packages, um, how do we push the boundaries of what is possible?
0: That's so exciting. Well, one more. Um applause for you and again just thank you so much for this conversation i hope that everyone listening just um is is overwhelmed by all the things that, that um that we talked about it in, in in all the good best of ways and um and just to to encourage everyone yeah you know, to get your hands on margarita costa diva of the Baroque Court published 2023 University of Toronto Press. So thank you again Jessica this is wonderful.
1: Thank you Kate thank you much so much for having me.